You're listening to the Fertility Docs Uncensored Podcast, featuring insight on all things fertility from some of the top-rated doctors around America. Whether you're struggling to conceive or just planning for your future family, we're here to guide you every step of the way. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Docs Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblen from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I'm joined by my lovely and talented co-host and friends, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hello. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hey. How's it going? Hey, guys. So we were just talking a minute ago about Carrie's Sunday outing. She just went. Well, tell us where you went, Carrie. So it was my puppy dog's time to go get her nails clipped and, you know, get groomed and and all the things. What type of doggy do you have? I have a Chihuini, part Chihuahua, part wiener dog. And so she is very long and skinny and low to the ground, but she has a Chihuahua pointy nose and she has Chihuahua little, she has part Chihuahua ears. One of them always sticks straight up. The other one is kind of flip floppy and it's (laughs) down part of the time and up part of the time. And she's black and she has super short, very soft hair. And so it was, um, and her name is Gigi. And as a side note, when I was in, I got her when I was in fellowship because she was a Christmas present from my husband to me. And we got her right at the same time that our other friends got a little pure sausage dog um, (laughs) named Lola. And so we would take them to the park in Atlanta and we would be yelling out for Gigi and Lola. And it sounded like we were streaming out stripper names. <laughs> I was just going to say that. For our two little sausage dogs. <laughs> um, so we took Gigi to go get her little spa day. And they were having an adoption event. Aww. Did you come home with anything, Carrie? So we dropped Gigi off. And of course, my daughter and I were out there, you know, petting and looking and all of that. And I started giving puppy dog eyes to my husband as we were driving away. I'm like, did you see that little black one with the little fuzzy nose and how soft he was and all that? And he's like, yep, I saw it. Let's go. (laughs) It's always so sad because you see all those little puppies and you're like, oh, they just need a good home. I can give you all homes. And so we got the call that Gigi was ready and he was like, we're all going. (laughs) He rightly did not trust me to go back to the pet store by myself because he knew full well that I was going to come home with multiple dogs. And he also timed it such that we had to leave, go get the dog and come back immediately because we were scheduled to podcast. And so he was like, okay, Ah. he knew I wasn't going to be late for this. No time for negotiation. No time for negotiation. No time for, well, what about this one? What about this one? Because there was another set that were a pair that were just so cute because they were bonded and they were like eight years old and that would fit in with Gigi because she's about 11 and like I would love them so if you could pick your dog you know not the dogs necessarily that are there what would be the second addition to your Chawini Gigi so I grew up with lots of doxies and dachshunds are what my family has always had so that's usually where I end up I have all these grand thoughts about other little generally small to mid-sized dogs like I I don't know what to do with a big dog yeah I wouldn't either so usually the smaller floofy ones but I gravitate towards doxies and so if there is a doxy I I will find it and I will love it and yeah so that's what do you guys have dogs I have two dogs I have a miniature schnauzer named Sage and then we have a little puppy um cavachon called Stella yeah so she's a sweetheart she is definitely a little ball of fuzz 
Yeah. So I married my husband and two beagles and they were the (laughs) cutest dogs. But once they went to the great beyond, he was, and I could tell he was going to make a good husband the way he took such good care of the, of the dogs. But even he kind of, we have two cats now and I'm surprised we've not gotten any dogs because he loves animals. In fact, he almost wishes he'd become a veterinarian at one point, but we just have two cats just because our lifestyle is just so hard to get home and let the animals out and all that kind of stuff. So cats are a little easier to take care of. A little more forgiving. My husband staying at home all day and working on his computer works very well for the lifestyle my dogs have become accustomed to. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, Susan, now do we have a couple of questions for the day today? Yes. This one is, I am a 41-year-old newlywed, very healthy, AMH.3, FSH6, AFC4. I love your podcast, especially the insight about being able to pass for late 20s, having zero impact on my eggs. That kickstarted me to find an REI and go straight to three retrieval IVF cycles to try to bank our entire future family. At consultation, REI said they get about one genetically normal embryo per cycle for women my age. But the clinic videos on egg attrition, the odds of embryos being genetically normal at my age seem to disagree. I don't know how those numbers can line up with the REI suggesting about one normal embryo per cycle. Like Fox Mulder, I want to believe. Can you provide any insight on these numbers? Even wild speculation would be great. (laughs) I love that. I love that. That's great. Actually, I can answer that question for our center because we've had a lot more patients that have been able to go through IVF, I think, recently because I think more patients have had coverage than ever before. And so I actually had our embryologist look those kind of numbers up because I see a lot of patients over the age of 40 and we try and prepare them for kind of what's going to happen. And I really hats off to your REI for doing that. But I think sometimes, and this may not be our listener, but sometimes people don't think the numbers apply to them. They're like, oh, those are the other 41-year-olds, but me, I'm going to do a lot better. And so, you know, as REIs, we just hate to see people that are upset with us and disappointed at the end when they don't get the number that they think they should get. And so essentially in our center in Nashville, about 20% of people that start to stimulate over the age of 40 get canceled because their ovaries just don't respond no matter how hard we try with medicine. And we found, which I think is actually, I thought was a high number, but about 20% to 25% of women over the age of 40 that get stimulated, we find one genetically normal embryo. And, And quite frankly, I was really surprised by that number. I thought it would be a lower number, but that's what we tend to get. So Carrie, what are your thoughts? Or Susan? (laughs) So, I mean, I don't know my exact numbers. I think the biggest fallout is if you get to retrieval and get an embryo biopsied, that's where I think the biggest fallout we have. I mean, I don't cancel... 20% of my over 40-year-olds. Let me rephrase. We don't cancel them. I'm just saying these are people that go through that maybe only have one egg or two eggs that we potentially can get. And so we give them the option and generally about 20% don't continue on. That's pretty high compared to what we have. But I would say the biggest decision-making point is if you have an embryo that actually survives to that day five, six, or seven stage, and then if that embryo is chromosomally normal, and it just varies so much. I mean, realistically, most people in their 40s are only going to get one to two embryos to be biopsied. And, you know, when you're looking at 80 ish percent of those embryos being chromosomally abnormal, I think it all kind of adds up to exactly what you said, Abby. And a lot of it just depends on how you stimulate. Now, the thing is, is I've had somebody, I remember one person early in my career 
And she was 42 to 43 and she had an unbelievable AMH. We stimulated her twice. She had like 20 something embryos biopsied, which I don't have young people with 20 something embryos to be biopsied. Let's just say that is not the norm. Let's be really clear. (laughs) That is an outlier. That's a way outlier. It was so unusual, but every single one of her embryos, every single time was abnormal. Whereas there are people who may only get one or two to be biopsied and, you know, from the hunger games, may the odds be ever in your favor. (laughs) (laughs) But you are not going to get a chromosomally normal embryo if you don't try. True. Yeah. Yeah. And what was her AMHRM? She said was 0.3. Did I hear that right? It was 0.3. So that's an issue. That's a big issue. She's not going to get 20 eggs. <laughs> no. There was a study that if you have a higher AMH and you are older, you are more likely to go the distance. You know, when you're talking about wild speculation, like that's kind of what statistics is in a lot of circumstances. I mean, it is wild speculation based on if you have a full stadium worth of people, then this is what's going to happen. But when you narrow that down to one person, it all becomes wild speculation. And so typically I would say the way that a lot of us counsel our patients is, okay, you're 41, your egg counts four. The goal is one embryo per cycle because it is unreasonable to think that we're going to get two or more. Mm -hmm. But usually that conversation is also held along with the, okay, there is a very real chance we are not going to get any embryos out of this, either because the eggs don't come out, the eggs aren't mature, the eggs don't fertilize, the embryos don't grow, or the embryos are not genetically normal, or the embryos don't survive the thaw. And so that discussion, I think it is reasonable to say, yes, it is reasonable for us to get one embryo per attempt. But if we don't, here's the list of all the bad things that can happen, which a lot of patients think, oh, they have to say that to everyone, which sort of we do, but it's, it is a very real part of counseling. Like this is how things go upside down. Very common thing over age of 40. Yeah. And so it's uh, like, I think it's realistic to think that if you get an embryo, one per cycle is what you will get, but there's a really, really real chance that you're not going to have anything. And unless you try, you're not going to know. And let me ask you too. So what would you say in a 41 year old with an AMH of 0.3, Susan said you rarely cancel patients. What would you tell her as far as if you just had to guess, and again, wild speculation, how many eggs do you think you're going to get from her at retrieval? I mean, her AFC was four. I would say I'm probably going to get between one to four eggs. Yep. And more likely, you know, two to three, like I'm expecting a minimum of one to be empty. Right. I would not be surprised if two are empty. And I wouldn't really be that surprised if three are empty. I would expect to get at least one, but who knows the quality of that. It's unusual to have an egg retrieval that I don't have any, but I would go to an egg retrieval if somebody had two follicles and sometimes one follicle. If your goal at 41 is fertility preservation and you fully understand those risks, you can't preserve fertility unless you do this. Well, the reason I bring that up is I've had some patients lately, somebody 42-ish that got six eggs and was really upset that she only got six eggs. And another patient that got 11 at 42 that was really upset that she only got 11. And I'm like, listen, guys, you don't realize that's good when you're over 41. Those were were good numbers. Well, I remember, Abby, you and I had had a discussion least a couple of weeks ago, probably a couple of months at this point, where everyone thinks that they're special, they're the exception. And when it never bothers me when people are disappointed at their results. 
I understand you always want the best all the time. I get that. What I sometimes emotionally struggle with just as a physician is when people are surprised at their results, because mm-hmm. we spend a lot of time saying, this is how this can go upside down. And so when people are surprised, it means that they didn't think about what we spent a lot of time talking about. And I get it. It is totally human nature and I don't really blame anyone for it, but it's one of those things where like, okay, how do we minimize that surprise? Cause you don't want somebody to go into it saying, well, this is never going to work because that futility is no good. Yeah. You don't want them to be negative, but you want them to be realistic. I think. Yeah. What I tell patients is I want them to be hopeful, but I want them to be appropriately hopeful for their particular situation. Right. Yeah. Hope for the best, expect the worst. All right. So today we're going to talk about what to do about a thin endometrium. And we encounter this quite frequently with some of our oral medicines and we encountered it some with our IVF medicines. And so give me a definition, Susan, of what a thin endometrium is. What do I mean by that? It's something that doesn't make us smile when we do your ultrasound. (laughs) So generally speaking, to throw a number at it, first of all, I'd like to preface it with when you are at the beginning of your cycle, whatever that cycle is supposed to be, we actually want a thin endometrium. Okay. I have patients who they're like, oh no, it's thin. And I'm like, it's supposed to be thin. (laughs) (laughs) So a thin endometrium, which sometimes we want, sometimes we don't. A thin endometrium, I would say is something less than seven millimeters. Is that fair? Yeah. Yeah. That works. That works for me. I think warm and fuzzy is over eight, but sometimes seven I live with. So, you know, at the beginning of your cycles, you should have a thin endometrium. What we worry about is that thin endometrium at other points in time, specifically mid-cycle or before you start your progesterone going into a embryo transfer, something like that. And Carrie, why is a thin endometrium bad? Because we want to make sure that that embryo has a warm and cushy and comfy place to land. (laughs) And Susan's sending me little random hand signals because I think (laughs) warm and cushy and comfy are probably not phrases that she uses to describe her endometrium to her patients, but they are phrases that I use to describe it to mine. So you want a nice, thick, soft mattress for that embryo to land in. So the sperm swims up past it at first hangs out with the egg, they come together, embryo is created, and then it travels down. And when it travels down, it needs to be able to come out of its shell and just kind of slide its little, they're called feet, podocytes, into the endometrial lining. And so in order to do that, you need a specific structure that is set up for that to happen. And so if it's a very thin lining, you worry that you don't really have that extra architecture on the lining of the uterus that is built to make a warm and fuzzy place for an embryo to snuggle in, bury under the blankets and make itself a home for the next nine months. So Susan, if I was really going to be a jerk, I would say something like, well, tell me what the endometrium has in it that makes the embryo implant grow. But the problem is we don't really know about that. So tell me what are ways that we can make it a more favorable, other than the thickness of the lining, what else do we think about to make it more of a favorable environment? Right. So I kind of divide up our endometrium problems into problems related to things short of IVF. So if you're doing IUIs or timed intercourse and we're using super ovulation medications to help the lady recruit follicles versus those things that happen in a embryo transfer cycle. So when I'm looking at 
someone who's doing IUIs or timed intercourse or something like that, the number one thing I look at is what medications are we using? Now, certain fertility medications get a bad rap and fairly so because they can cause a thin lining. So the most noted is Clomid or Clomiphene. And especially in people who do repetitive Clomid cycles, we tend to see cycle per cycle linings getting thinner and thinner and thinner. And if that's the case, if you're in the moment of the cycle and your doctor's trying to rescue it without a better term, sometimes we will give estrogen. I tend to give estrogen vaginally because it absorbs really well and locally into the uterus to try to get it extra fluffy in a few days time. In future cycles, I usually switch. I honestly don't use much Clomid, but if I did and I was in that circumstance, I would switch to something else, likely Letrozole or Femara, or if it was appropriate, using pure injectable medication. So Carrie, can you name some causes? Why do people get thin endometriums? Susan mentioned one, Clomid. So the medicine sometimes we put patients on can make the lining thinner, but what are some other causes? So other causes can be prior procedures that have been done on the uterus, such as an endometrial ablation is the hard and fast, like very difficult to recover from. Um, And an endometrial ablation is when someone has had really, really heavy periods and they have intentionally destroyed the lining of the uterus in order to lighten up their periods to save them from all of the medical drama that comes with that. They're excellent procedures, but they are very difficult to come back from because they intentionally create a ton of scar tissue and they intentionally destroy the lining of the endometrium. And so I have yet to see one of my patients come back from that successfully. Sometimes you can get little pockets of lining. And so I have had a couple of people where there's been a part that has not been destroyed. And so we can make the most of that part, but that is a whole other episode in and of itself. Other procedures, we worry about things like a DNC that was complicated by an infection. And so I specifically say complicated by an infection because most DNCs are fine. Or a DNC that was performed by an oncologist because you had abnormal cells. Because they're going to be more aggressive. A DNC by an oncologist versus a DNC by your general OB-GYN or a DNC by your fertility doctor are going to be very, very different in aggressiveness. Mm-hmm. And, and the reason the oncos are aggressive is because they're trying to save you from cancer. And so they've got a very fair reason and they're right to be doing what they're doing. And so if you have a really aggressive DNC, if you have one that is complicated by an infection afterwards, like your standard DNC that you're going to get with a termination of pregnancy, it's not going to really cause problems. If there is something bigger medical going on, that can potentially cause problems. One other thing too, I was going to throw in there, if you're in a low estrogen environment, like if you've just had a baby and then say the, there's retained placenta and somebody goes in to do DNC, that's a time when your estrogen is really low. And I always like to say estrogen's like miracle growth for your endometrium. <laughs> and if you're in a low estrogen state where you're not making it for a while, I have seen quite a few people over the years that have come with Asherman syndrome scarring of the endometrium because of a postpartum DNC primarily. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you can see a thin endometrium because there's just inadequate amounts of estrogen. So I tend to see this with someone where I'm really worried about egg quality, where the egg's growing. It's just 
whether it's age, whether it's uh, clues that have been given by her FSH and AMH afterwards or her follicle counts, like there's just not a whole lot of estrogen being produced naturally. And so you don't have that strong miracle grow effect on the lining of the uterus. And so we can sometimes augment that with meds, but there's an element of the diagnostic to that as well of like, Hey, your everything else is is equal, but your eggs are perhaps not the best and not producing a lot of estrogen, and that's why we're getting a thin lining. And also, sometimes we've talked about this before in previous episodes: hypothalamic amenorrhea, where women sometimes even just long, thin women that don't make a lot of estrogen for some reason tend to have thinner linings. But specifically, if they have this condition, hypothalamic amenorrhea, a lot of times they're runners or they exercise a bunch. And their body just says, you know, now's not a good time to be pregnant. And so the brain doesn't really talk to the ovary, doesn't tell the ovary to develop an egg and make estrogen. So, you know, every now and then we'll get patients that come to us and we think that it's a different problem, but then we start talking to them and it really is that they're lining sin because they're not stimulating their eggs the way they should. So kind of going from that into the people who they're getting ready for an embryo transfer, they're doing program cycle, those types of things really shouldn't be related to egg quality and those types of things. Unfortunately, there's a good section of those people that are going to just have what we call an idiopathic issue with their uterus. And idiopathic just frankly means we don't know exactly why it's happening, but that doesn't mean that, you know, our treatments aren't successful. I think what's really helpful in that situation is looking at their IVF stimulation, seeing how high did their estrogen have to get before it got really thick, because there's some women who, you know, most women, if they have an estrogen of 200, 300, their lining is going to be plenty thick, but there are some ladies out there who they need to have estrogens in like a thousand to get a thick lining. And that is all with the caveat of, I mean, there's some relatively decent studies out there that when it comes to embryo transfers, I mean, we really get hung up on this thick endometrium thing. Obviously we have a whole episode about this. There's some decent studies that say that it's probably not as important as we all like to think it is. <laughs> we just don't have other things to look at though, unfortunately, <laughs> mm-hmm. to say it's going to be a good cycle. That's true. So I have resisted the urge to go down the rabbit hole of like, well, how much of a difference is it when you have a delta of an endometrium versus the absolute thickness? If you started out at two millimeters and we ended up at six versus you started out at yeah. six and ended up at 10, are they essentially the same? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of that. Um, a lot of people, they freak out when they see their endometrium, when they get to the transfer, because they're like, oh my gosh, I'm thinner. Like, well, when you look at the physiology data, it's supposed to be thinner and that contraction is good. And so everything comes with kind of a side explanation of, you know, sometimes the difference is a good thing. Sometimes, sometimes thin is fine. Sometimes thin is not fine. And so. So Carrie, what can we do? And you kind of mentioned this earlier, Susan did earlier. What can we do to try and help the lining along in cycles where we're doing ovulation induction with oral medicine versus in cycles with IVF? So with ovulation induction with oral medication, it's all about what meds are you using? And really both with oral medication and IVF, it's all about what meds you're using. So, and how high is your estrogen? And so with an ovulation induction cycle, we'll switch from Clomid to Letrozole. Sometimes we'll add in some injectables. Sometimes we'll add in some supplementary estrogen. And those are the kind of things that we toy with. Sometimes we'll go a little bit further into it and say, all right, your follicle is good enough to trigger now, but let's give it two more days and see if your lining can thicken up a little bit more. So those are a lot of the things that we do with induction cycles. With IVF, most of the time we're working with a frozen embryo transfer, particularly if a lining is questionable 
you're not going to do a fresh transfer on a questionable lining. You're going to freeze that embryo and you're going to wait and see if you can get better because there's no reason not to. And so we toy with the types of estrogen we give. You can give pills, you can give patches, you can give vaginal, and you can give injectable. And everybody has their cocktails of what they like to do in what order. So those are things to get different levels and different absorptions. Sometimes when we have to do really aggressive cycles, sometimes giving gonadotropins is the way to do it because it makes your body produce the estrogen and some people, they respond better to that. So we'll do full-on injectable cycles to get that lining thick, even though we're not doing it for the eggs, we're doing it for the lining. What type of adjunct steel ever use? Yeah, I was just about to ask that question. What supplements would you use? So keep in mind, in my mind, supplements is the same word in this case for voodoo. <laughs> Because there's not a huge amount of data for a lot of them. Yeah, true. If somebody's like, is there anything else I can do? What are the things that you would recommend? Aspirin. And so uh, the theory behind aspirin is it just may improve the blood flow to the lining of the endometrium. Sometimes I'll also recommend vitamin E because sometimes there's data to show that it can dilate the spiral arterioles that go to the endometrium. But you're right. I mean, there's not great data. These are definitely people I encourage to consider acupuncture. Yes. Acupuncture is a great idea. Also. Yes, 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 yes. Um, there's really light data on Viagra. There's some physiologic sense behind cabergoline. There's some people who use growth hormone. I don't particularly like that one because it's so expensive. Um, and I haven't seen any really good data. Pretty much every REI you talk to has their closet cocktail mm -hmm. of this lining is not thick. So what are we going to do? Sometimes I will use letrozole and try and get a natural lining up because sometimes that can be a little thicker. I just had a patient who's gone through and the discussions we've had have been about all of this. And so she went through and she did a standard estrogen cycle and then they added injectable estrogen. And then she transferred to me in my clinic and we did a letrozole cycle and that didn't work. She had already failed the basic estrogen cycles. And so we ended up doing a letrozole cycle with gonadotropins. And ultimately it was the gonadotropins where it's toying the line of, I don't want her to ovulate too early because that's going to screw up my lining. Yeah. But it ended up being a gonadotropin cycle and now she's pregnant. And so sometimes it's just patience. I do think there's a pretty good number of people that if they don't respond to anything else, the one thing that I'm more inclined to believe that they'll respond to is their own endogenous gonadotropin. So I do think doing FSH just to thicken their lining up can be really helpful for a lot of patients in that category. Yeah. So any last words that you guys have? I would counsel if this is affecting you, patience. And knowing that your REI probably has kind of her own set of, this is the order of things that we're going to do in. And these are the patients where I usually have a lot more back and forth with of, this is what we're going to do and how we're going to do it. But having patience be patient about this because it takes a while to get there. It does sometimes take a while. Sometimes it takes weeks to get the lining, especially in embryo transfers. You know, when we're doing an IUI, we're at the mercy of what's going to happen in the ovary. Whereas with an IUI, we can sit there and tweak for weeks and usually be fine. Yeah. I do think the tincture of time can be helpful for some people. They just need exposure over a longer period of time of estrogen to get their lining thickened too. So mm -hmm. definitely patience is a good thing. And there's oftentimes a point where we'll say, okay, this is the best your uterus can do. Are you okay with using one of your embryos with this line? And most of us aren't going to offer that right away. We're going to be like, let's try some things first. And that can take three months, six months, sometimes longer to know, okay, we have tried the things and now we're going to cut down and we're going to transfer into a lining that's only six millimeters thick in hopes that it works. And it can work. Yeah. 
I've had several patients in that category. We've done everything we can. And finally, we're like, this is the best lining we're ever going to get. And we transfer and they get pregnant. So it can work for sure. Yeah. I, I sometimes would rather have a beautiful six millimeter trilaminar stripe that should have come out of a textbook than something that's, you know, 11 millimeters, but all hazy and not quite as pretty. And wonky. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. All right. Well, to our audience, thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Also, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review in iTunes. We'd really love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook. So please hop on and leave us a like or a comment. You can also visit fertilitydocsuncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered anonymously on our Ask the Doc segment, so don't hold back. Um, We also love episode ideas, so let us know what you want to hear. As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. Talk to y'all soon. Bye. 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 Bye.